1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, respected, being valued, feeling like you belong, appreciate having your contribution appreciated. These are the things all of us want from our employers, not just from our employers, from our colleagues, from our managers, from everybody. And some of us get that respect, but too many don't particularly if you feel like you're more of an other, and there are many ways in which I can describe you as an other. Some of the classic ones we see in the press all the time having to do with gender or race or whatever. But there are many other ways I can feel like an other, like being a marketing person in the middle of an engineering-led company can leave you feeling like <laughs> an other. So what we want to talk today is this notion of respect, Why is it such a key component of motivation? Hint, for those of you who are looking to motivate people in a more powerful way, this is an element. What do you need to be doing as a leader? What do you do if you get it wrong with someone? And how does respect create this lovely, more inclusive environment where there's greater collaboration, greater engagement, greater a bit of everything? And so how do you know if you're doing the right thing? So with me today is one of my favorites, Kim Scott. She's the author of Radical Candor, as well as the newly released paperback version of Just Work called Radical Respect. She's co-founder of a company that helps people put all of these ideas into practice, and Kim has had a long career in the tech world, I think is the easiest way to say it, as a CEO (laughs) coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and a bunch of others. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, and before that, she led AdSense, YouTube and double click Teams at Google. So, Kim, welcome to the show today.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, I'm excited to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. Um, so, we had a wonderful
1: conversation about radical candor before, and I am just a big proponent of that mo- model the notion that if you don't get the care with the candor, you just are not getting anywhere with anything that you need as a leader. But now you write about respect. So why? Is this related to the feedback? Is it not? Why this book?
2: A hundred percent. I mean, if you don't respect a person, it's very hard to care personally about them and it's very hard to challenge them directly. We don't bother challenging people who we don't respect and it's really difficult to care about folks who we don't respect. And I learned this. So radical like... In some senses radical respect is the prequel to radical candor like it's the it it is the floor beneath which we cannot afford to go and i think respect is a i mean all words are complicated when you really stop and think about them with humans yes 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 but respect has two very different meanings one of them is something that we owe to everyone we owe it to everyone to respect their feelings to respect their identity to respect them as human beings and so it's kind of a universal and on the other hand is respect that we must earn uh respect for our skills respect for our accomplishments and i'm talking about the first kind of respect (laughs) the thing that we owe to everyone and I I started thinking about this shortly back in 2017, shortly after Radical Candor came out. You know, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it, and in, <laughs> indeed I did. And I was at a tech company in San Francisco, and I, I was giving a Radical Candor talk, and the CEO of this company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, a person I like and respect enormously, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech or in any other sector for that matter. And when I finished giving the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's gonna help me build the kind of culture I want, but I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to do it than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that when she would give people, even the most gentle, compassionate criticism, she would get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And as soon as she said it to me, I realized that I didn't spend enough time in radical candor thinking about the ways that bias, prejudice, and bullying interfere in our ability both to solicit and to give feedback. Uh, and I sort of had four realizations at the same time. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I imagine myself to be, that I want to be. I had failed even to notice the extent to which my colleague, who I really liked and cared about, had to show up unfailingly cheerful and pleasant in every meeting we we were ever in together, even though she had what to be ticked off about, as we all do. And so I hadn't ever considered the toll that must take on her, and I had never intervened. So I'd sort of failed as an upstander. The second thing I realized was that not only had I been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to her, I had also been in denial about the kinds of things that happened to me as a, as a white woman in the workplace. And, uh, and that's kind of hard thing for the author of a book called Radical Candor to admit, but I had pretended that a whole host of things were not happening that were in fact happening. And so I never chose the kind of response that I wish in retrospect that I had chosen. And I think part of the reason that I was in denial about the things that were happening to me is that I never wanted to think of myself as a victim. But even yeah. less than wanting to think of myself as a victim did I want to think of myself as the culprit, and yeah. so I was most deeply in denial about the times when I had been biased, when I had caused people harm by bullying them or with prejudices that that, that I had and, and was was uh, you know therefore unable to uh, to make up for to, to make amends for uh, and so I had sort of I had failed to become part of the solution and continue to be part of the problem. And last but not least, I realized as a leader, I imagined I was creating these BS-free zones where everybody could do the best work of their lives and enjoy working together. And yet I had failed to prevent bias, prejudice, and bullying from making that impossible. So that was what set me down my radical respect journey. Right. So the respect part, the human part. The mm-hmm. feeling
1: that they ever, you know, how they feel as a human being, what their feelings are, what their identity is as a human being, um, that is something that we owe to everyone that we work, and that is the basis that allows you then to do the radical candor, the challenging, and the caring about them. As a yes, human being. I think we all have to agree with that.
2: I think we all well, some- we don't have to. I mean, well, I'm, open, no. I'm, pro- I'm, I'm the author of Fair. radical candor. Fair. So some pe- some people, in fact, it's really interesting. Like I, I love uh, Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety. I believe it to my core, and yet several times recently, when I've been working with teams, people have objected to the notion of safety, um, and they feel that safety is dangerous. Like it's this, par- we're at this paradoxical moment, and I think it's really important to say that that this kind that psychological safety makes us. It it is a source of strength. It is not weakness. It is is how we learn how to criticize each other and create the environment in which our leaders don't sometimes inadvertently, sometimes intentionally shut down the voices of the people who work for them. Okay. All right.
1: So respect is the underlying construct that without which we're not going to achieve any of these higher levels. So we're not going to achieve challenge. We're not going to achieve caring genuinely. Mm -hmm. We're not going to achieve psychological safety. We're probably not going to achieve a decent level of a conflict or debate that we need to have in order to reach for the best solutions. All right. And part of your argument is what gets in the way of respect, I think, if I've understood it. Is this bias and prejudice and bullying, or are you saying that those things are just there to show that respect isn't as broadly as uh, true no, as th- it seems to be? I think,
2: the, I think there's one of the things that I do in, in radical respect is I offer a taxonomy, mm-hmm. uh, not a taxonomy, but a, t- a taxonomy of the things that get in the way of respect. The things that that knock us off our good intentions, and I think bias, prejudice, and bullying are at the core of that. And then when you layer power on top of bias, prejudice, and bullying, you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violence, and uh, and so that that that's sort of the taxonomy. And I think very often we get confused about where we are, like which of these things are we dealing with. And and so one of the things I tried to do is to kind of help us. And and of course, one thing leads to another. So this is not, you know, there's not bright lines between these things, but, but getting a sense of where am I in the taxonomy can help us figure out how to respond. Okay.
1: All right. So I get that one. And then one of my questions for you, which I think you've answered, but I'm going to still do anyway, psychological safety. We've been talking about that. Is that the same thing as respect? Are they part shades of the same thing or not? Sort of explain where you stand on this one.
2: Yeah, I think I think respect is necessary for psychological safety, but psychological safety goes beyond respect. I, I think what psychological safety is, and it, it's interesting to think about what leaders have to do to create the conditions for psychological safety. I think a big a big part of what leaders need to do to create a culture of psychological safety is to to make sure that people know that it is not only safe to challenge them but that they will be rewarded for challenging them and that because it is it like it just is risky to criticize your boss <laughs> let's let's admit it feels risky and so it's up to the boss to prove that it that not only is it not risky but that they'll be rewarded that people will be rewarded for criticizing them and for disagreeing with them and that is actually what helps us move forward faster. That is uh, the, the whole point of having a team, if you're a leader, is that you're, you're going to get better ideas out of people than you can have by yourself. You know if you need a team, you need them talking to you and disagreeing with you. Uh, you know, who wants to be the uh, ours is not to do or die. I mean, ours is not to wonder why. Ours is but to do and die, kind of leader. That's not what we're. That's not what we're looking for as leaders. So I think psychological safety has to create the environment in which both people people can be both rewarded for their work, but also rewarded relationally for challenging each other. Okay. So, but then without respect. I'm not
1: gonna accept that challenge from somebody if I'm a leader, Um, I'm gonna discard it. And I would also argue, yeah. If you
2: don't respect your people. And respect, when I talk about a leader and respect, it's not about demanding respect from others, it's about starting out by giving giving respect respect. to others. And
1: presumably, if I don't respect the leader that I'm working for, I don't see any value in challenging him. In the first place, I'm just wasting my time. Is that the argument as well, that it goes both ways?
2: Yes. And I think that if you fear your leader too much, then you're not going to challenge them as well. Uh, and, and very rarely do we really fundamentally respect the people who we fear. Yeah. Right. I think sometimes leaders confuse fear and respect. And those are two very different, very, very different things.
1: Okay. I agree with that. I've seen a few of those.
2: Yes, so have I. All
1: right. So fundamentally respect. Um, And I just want to ask a broad question. So respect is a basis for being able to challenge. Respect is a basis for creating psychological safety. Respect is a basis for creating an inclusive culture. Respect is a basis for finding the whole is greater than the sum of the parts in short language. Um are there other aspects that are really critical for this diversity? I mean we've been doing diversity for eons and honest to goodness we're we've moved the needle maybe a few millimeters not Yeah. Far yeah, far it, far. It,
2: it it can feel discouraging sometimes. Uh, but I am not discouraged. I remain optimistic. Good. Me too. Uh, it's a journey. Yeah. But yeah. Is respect, I
1: mean, is respect the thing we have to do? Is that the key ingredient or do you think there are other things as well? Uh, Well,
2: I think there's, I think it is a necessary but not sufficient condition. Uh, So respect is the floor, not the ceiling. Uh, And so I think that one of the things, if we go back to what we were saying before about the things that get in the way of respect are bias, prejudice, and bullying sort of at the core. And I think that One of the things that as leaders we need to do is we need to prevent bias, prejudice, and bullying from ruining respect on our teams. And so there are very specific things we are obligated, I believe, to do as leaders to to prevent those things from ruining respect on our teams. And, And the first of them is to understand the difference between the three things. When I look back over my career and when I really failed to prevent bias, prejudice, and bullying from harming my my team's ability to get things done. And by the way, this is all in service of getting things done. Like bias, prejudice, and bullying are the things that disrupt your team. Uh, and acknowledging them is not what is disruptive. What is disruptive are the problems, not finding solutions to the problems. Sometimes there's confusion about that. But anyway, the first thing you need to do is to disentangle. Like if you're you're facing a really hard problem, it's useful to break it down into its component parts and to to solve each part in turn. And so bias, I'm going to define as not meaning it. Bias is usually unconscious. Whereas prejudice, I'm going to define as meaning it. It's a very consciously held belief, usually reflecting an unfair and inaccurate stereotype, some sort of essentialism. And bullying, I'm gonna define as being mean. (laughs) There's usually no belief, uh, conscious or unconscious going on. It's just an effort to coerce or dominate someone else. And I think the beginning of the problem is to break it down into its component parts. Okay. The beginning of the solution, of finding the solution to the problem, is breaking it down into its component parts.
1: So if my job is to make sure that I don't allow, as a leader, that I don't allow bias, prejudice, and bullying to disrupt my team and the service mm-hmm. of getting good work done, good ideas, mm-hmm. good work, mm-hmm. accomplishment, success. How'd, so when I get the three, and I get the three are different in ways, so there's shades of gray in between. Mm-hmm. How do I do that? How do I both recognize that it's going on? Because frequently those things are a bit hidden from me. Yeah. And what do I do about each of them?
2: Yeah. So I think that in in terms of uh, one of the things I would say is you can't do it alone as a leader. They may be hidden from you by others, but they also may be hidden from you because you're in denial, as I was in much of my career. So you need, you need, that. this is a whole, this is like a barn raising. Everybody needs, everybody has a role to play and so i think one of the things you can do about bias that is very helpful is to work with your team to disrupt it in the moment and you want to start by inviting them to disrupt your bias you know because it's a little hard to have one's bias disrupted and so one of the things that i recommend is is sort of a three-step program The first is to sit down with your team, and the first step is to sit down with your team and have a conversation about what's the word or phrase that everyone will use to disrupt bias when they notice it happening in the moment. Uh, And so I like a purple flag. I have a purple flag here. For those of you who are on audio, I'm waving a little purple flag that I bought for 10 cents. So it doesn't have to be an expensive uh, uh, proposition. And but other other teams I've worked with have said, ah, we don't like the purple flag. One design team is designing something that's way more beautiful than my purple flag. One team just likes to throw up a peace sign. Another team had kind of a cat theme going on. They would meow at each other. Another team I worked with just used an I statement. I you know, I, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. So there i mean there are obviously wrong words to use you don't want to disrupt bias with more bias but but the the important thing is that you as a leader you're not the the vocabulary dictator ask your team what's the word or phrase that that you all are going to be most comfortable using and then you need to adopt it so the first, step number one is a shared vocabulary because Very often, we don't know what to say when we notice somebody saying or doing something that's biased. And so we wanna solve that problem. So that's number one. Step number two is to teach people what to say when they're the person who has caused harm, when they're the person who has said or done the biased thing. Because I don't know about you, but for me, when I have said or done something that is biased, I feel, and someone points it out, I feel deeply ashamed and i mean i can tell you in my body where i feel it the backs of my knees tingle it's the same sensation that i get if my children walk too close to the edge of a precipice it's like a real fight or flight sort of <laughs> amygdala response and we rarely respond with our best executive function when we're in fight or flight mode and so you want to teach people to say thank you for pointing it out just as a way to like slow de- take it it's like take a deep breath say, thank you for pointing it out. And then you either say, I get it. I'm going to work on not doing it again. Or I don't get it. Can you talk to me after the meeting? And the I don't get it part is hard. I mean, I, I, when I have s- said or done something that's, that has harmed someone else, but I don't even know what I did wrong. Like I'm ashamed because I hurt somebody and I'm ashamed because I'm ignorant. And that's a hard place to be. And that is the place that a lot of us are, in these days all the time and it's not the 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 solution to that is not to pretend that nothing happened (laughs) the solution to that is to point it out and then explain it and the reason i say explain it after the meeting is that the promise of bias disruption is that it will disrupt the bias but it's not going to disrupt every meeting we're in together so we these are things that probably half the people in the room get half the people don't get and so people can educate themselves on their on their own time, not on the meeting time. And then the third step is a shared commitment to doing this. Because I can say, "Oh, we're going to do bias disruption," and then and then we 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 never do it because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so you need to sort of at, at some regular interval say you know, we've got, we've had three meetings and nobody's disrupted any bias. Let's pause and think what we might have missed. Because very often we either don't do this because it's not comfortable or because we're not noticing. And so we need to build that stamina to disrupt bias. So that's one idea. I mean, there's a million other ideas for disrupting bias, but that's one that I recommend.
1: All right. So the notion, then what we're doing is we're going to catch it. We're going to collectively catch it. We're going to notice it. We're yeah. going to call it out in whatever word or phrase or action we choose, that's going to help solve it. And then we're going to make a commitment to kind of keep at this, review it, see what we're doing, and not let that disrupt the meeting. Yeah. So we're not going to go into a lecture series in the middle of the meeting. We can take some yeah. of offline. And yeah. I think it's that makes it okay for people to say, I don't get it. I think yeah. there's power in that.
2: Yeah. I think when when people like there's a phrase that I really don't like which is political correctness. But I okay. want to offer some compassion for that because I think very often people are frustrated. They feel silenced. They feel like they're not sure which word to use and they're not allowed to ask and and it feel it can feel like a gotcha to people. Yeah. And so saying I'm sorry, you know. Thank you for pointing it out. I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? Like that is where we are. Very often, we are saying or doing things that are really upsetting the people around us, and we have no idea what, what we've done wrong. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. But the only way out is through. We got to ask. We got we got to show that we care. Um, and 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 we've got to own. Brene Brown has this that wonderful podcast she recorded in 2020 about. Owning your own shame, yeah. um, and uh, and that was in the context of white people owning their own shame, uh, in uh, uh, in the second um, uh, Black Lives Matter movement. But I think that that every everybody has their biases, you know, and mm-hmm. and it's a very natural human response when we say or do something biased to to feel ashamed. And that's like, that doesn't mean don't point it out. That means we need to learn how to uh, get out of shame brain and respond well. Right.
1: Yeah. One of the things I like to do in these conversations is to take it out of the classic gender and race sort of assumption about bias and talk about bias in a completely different context. Okay. So that, because what it does is show how universal the bias is. And I think if we can open it up for a universal behavior, we get out of frustrations with the conversation that goes on in whatever country at this moment in time. Yeah. That's not to take away the power of bias in a host of ways that are yes. gender and racial and ethnic and so on bias. But so, for example, um, a bias in terms of how what is an appropriate communication pattern. Mm-hmm. Somebody who likes to talk and talk and talk and talk and will finally get to their answer versus somebody who wants it quick, succinct, really quickly, and we don't often even understand the meaning of it. That's a preference, a bias, we might say. And yeah. we tend to favor, listen to one and not listen to the other one. Just as a trivial example to say this is not just in race and gender.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is that is a good example. Although I will also say about that example that it is important to make sure that everybody gets a chance to talk. And sometimes people really? who take up too much air time yeah. <laughs> don't give everybody yeah. a chance to talk. So there's like, you know, there's, there's, a, there's some reality there. I, I mean, I'll give you another example that I have been thinking, of. I have two others are springing to mind, so okay. you can tell me. All right, you good. Think of One of them is when I was I was working at Google and I was in sales and operations. And I was working with, uh, with an engineering team, and I presented some analysis that I had done about something I wanted the engineers to build. And the engineering leader looked at me, and he said, oh, you're doing ops math. And there was like, there was a kind of a, uh, maybe it wasn't even a bias, maybe it was actually a prejudice, but like I wasn't as quantitative as they were. Uh, and you know there was probably some some truth to like i studied russian literature i did not study engineering so there's probably some truth to it but there was also like the analysis i had done was was good analysis you know so so that's another example i don't know what do you what do you make of that one it makes sense to me
1: because you're speaking a different language you're presenting data in a different way and there's a bias that because you're not our way or one of us for that yeah. matter that it can't be accurate or accurate enough or some version of that. Yeah, yeah we do that yeah. all the time, I think. We put people in a category and that shows, I think, often our, um, I like the word prejudice or bias against that category. We make yeah. people other in that moment.
2: Yeah, yeah. And the, and the fact of the matter was, like, there's no such thing as ops math. Math is yeah. math. <laughs> We're all doing math. Uh, so, so that's why. And I don't think he meant it like, I don't think he consciously thought you know, you're not, you can't be analytical because you didn't study engineering. But anyway, there's another example that I've been thinking about lately, which is different people have different rhythms of work. Like I am not a person who can work well if I work more than about seven hours a day, actually. Uh, And other people can work very productively 14 hours a day. And I think we tend to say, oh, you're hiding from something because you're working all the time. And that's not necessarily the case. Like some people really have different, different, like some people don't need as much sleep as I do. Some people don't need as much downtime as I do. And I think beginning to own what we need without imposing what we need on others is an important bias to overcome. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's a great one. Um, that sense of the way, I'll give you another one I see. Um, there is a Can I wave of a purple flag?
2: Notice, yes. this is something that yes, I please. was taught. I, I, this, so this is a purple flag. I was in, in, in as I was writing Radical Respect. Someone was was reading it and looking for biased language, and and I used C when I meant "notice" all the time. And uh, and I care. I cared about this a lot because another person who is helping me to edit the book is blind. He's a historian who's blind. And so I really, I understood it. I thought I had gotten it. And then all of a sudden, I, right before I turned the book in, I decided to do a search to see how, notice, see, notice, I just did, like, it's so, it's very difficult to break these habits of speech that are biased. And in a 350-page book, I had used sloppy sight metaphors 99 times, even after I had become aware of it. So... I think that it is really, it's hard to change these. It's difficult to change these. Um, Okay. And maybe as a shock to people that we
1: even need to, but fair enough. It is a bias against people who don't have sight. All right. So back to my thought, one of the things that I notice all the time, and I think I've completely lost what it was. um, Oh, Drive drive, yes. One of the pet peeves and frustrations is if I am particularly driven as a leader, highly ambitious and driven in that like, mm, and I show it mm-hmm. in a very forward, out front way, I have a bias against people who have a different demonstration of their own ambition, who are quieter about their ambition. They may have the yes. same level of drive, yes. but just show it in a very different way.
2: I think that is really important. In in Radical Candor, I talk about loud listeners and quiet listeners, uh-huh. <laughs> and both of them can be great leaders. Both of the, both quiet listening and loud listening are important leadership attributes, but it feels very different. And I think mistaking—I I think part of this drive, maybe another bias, is like introversion, extroversion. There are introverted leaders and there are extroverted leaders, and both can be extremely successful and wonderful to work with, but demanding that everyone, you know, when extroverts demand that everyone be extroverted, that is an unproductive bias. Right, right,
1: absolutely. Well, anytime we're demanding everybody to be anything like us all the time. Yes,
2: yeah. All
1: right, so we've talked about bias. Let's talk for a minute about prejudice. What do I do to disrupt prejudice on the team?
2: Prejudice is really tricky because, you know, in the case of bias, an I statement is often a good response to teach Mm -hmm. people. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. Mm -hmm. Uh, An an I statement sort of holds up a mirror. However, in the case of prejudice, holding up a mirror is not going to (laughs) work. And it's not going to work because you the other person's going to grin in the mirror and they're going to like what they see. They're going to say, yeah, isn't that the truth? You know, and and it's, and it's, it's not a universally accepted truth. And because they consciously believe this thing. And so in the case of, in the case of prejudice, you need, you need sort of policies, HR policies, you need to make people aware of the laws and you can use an it statement. Uh, And an it statement can appeal to a law. It is illegal to, not hire someone because of their hair in a lot of states, thanks to the Crown Act. Or an HR policy, it is an HR violation not to hire someone because of their hair. But there's also this sort of common sense statement. It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair, for example. And I think as a leader, it's important to teach people what the laws are and what the HR policies are. But there's also this common sense part of uh, of of the it statement. And an it statement sort of draws a line between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want. Like we cannot control people's minds as leaders, uh, but they can't impose their beliefs on others. Mm-hmm. And where that line is gonna be drawn uh, is, is often sort of uh, about judgment. And you need to create a shared understanding on your team of where that line is and to communicate it. And so this is hard. It's really easy yeah. for me to say in abstract, oh, there's a line between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but they can't impose it on others. But where is that line? Does it mean you can't wear certain t-shirts with th- certain things written on them to work? What? Where is the line for you? Your, and and you, the only thing I can say is you gotta sit down and create a space for conversation on your team in order for you all to define where that line is beyond the law and the HR policy for your organization.
1: Okay. I can see how relevant that might be in conversations about talent. Yes. Identifying high potential talent, for example. I can see that in a conversation around hiring. You know, do we hire this person or not hire this person? That there could be all sorts of prejudices and biases, some -hmm. of which we might say, some of which we might not say. But if we haven't talked about the qualities we're looking for Etc. how we're going to make that decision, then it's very hard to combat those in any way in the moment. Uh, Or at least to say, great, you know, I understand your perspective, but it's not how we're going to make this decision in this company.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think um, both the words high potential and talent are fraught words. I actually prefer not to use them uh, because I believe that every single human being on the planet is high potential. Like we, we are all high potential creatures. Now that doesn't mean that I would be a high potential. I should never be an airline pilot, for example, because I'm Uh, I'm not good at things that demand great attention to detail. And so I work really hard not to do jobs that will kill people if I don't pay attention to details. Cause this is, you know, so, so I think that is not, that is a skill, you know, I think we're all capable of developing all kinds of skills. I don't want to have a fixed mindset about it, but that is a skill that would take such enormous effort for me to develop that it's not worth it to me to develop Mm -hmm. that particular Mm -hmm. skill. And so I think, that it's important. And also talent feels like some sort of innate thing. Whereas I think what you want to do is you want to hire people with the skills and the ambitions that are relevant to the job, you know, the right skills and the right ambitions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, um, No doubt there will be some people who agree with you and no doubt there will be plenty of people who disagree with you. Yes.
2: Yes, I don't. Exactly. I've
1: never liked the classification as you have potential, you don't have potential, because it's yeah. so hard to know how we judge it. But that's an yes. aside story. Yes, yes. Um, let's come back to the core theme about respect, and I do want to come back and do the bullying piece as well. Yes, really. Important. But because that's a really, really important one, so I want to make sure that bias, uh, prejudice, and bullying are not disrupting my team. Yes, the respect on my team. Are there things I do to ensure that respect is there or is it really all about making sure these disruptors don't happen?
2: I think that there I think the the first thing you want to do is is disrupt bias, create a you know, create the conditions where prejudice is is not right. permitted and and thirdly you want to you want to uh, sort of create consequences for bullying, which we'll talk yeah. about in a, in a moment. I think the other thing that you can do, sort of on the positive side, is make sure that you are, as a leader, soliciting feedback and making it fun to challenge you, fun to disrupt your biases. Like you want to you want to lead by example, and you you have to, as a leader, prove to people that you're you're walking the talk because i think there's such an inst- so many people when they take a new job with a new boss they are bringing their past experiences with other bosses into mm-hmm. <laughs> into that relationship and very often people have had really terrible experiences with previous bosses and so it's up to you to prove that you are not that boss. It's, it's unfortunate. Like you, you feel often like a, as a boss that of course you're, you know, of course you're open to feedback, but you got to realize that just because of your position, people don't necessarily believe that. Fair
1: enough. Fair enough. So it's, again, we're talking about this, creating these conditions that make it possible for us to challenge. I think it, that's the essence
2: yeah. of what- and, you- and to care. And to and care. care. Uh, yeah you know i think another mistake that managers make is they're like oh this is just who i am yeah. and w- <laughs> the problem with that is when they say oh this is just who i am uh is that you what you're doing is you're saying i'm i'm not gonna adjust how i'm talking for how you're feeling And you just won't communicate very well. Like when we communicate, we communicate on an intellectual plane and on an emotional plane at the same time. And if you as a leader ignore all the emotional signals that people are sending your way, then you're just not gonna communicate very well. You're gonna fail as a leader.
1: You're also not gonna motivate or inspire or engage or generate creativity and a whole host of other things if people are not connected to you emotionally. Kim, this is a perfect place finally to take a break. So my guest today is Kim Scott. The book we're talking about is Radical Respect. And while it comes after Radical Candor, we could argue that is the foundations for being able to create Radical Candor. So when we come back, Kim, I wanna turn to this bullying because I think everybody is anxious about what do I do with bullying, whether I'm the leader or whether I'm just a person on the team. So we'll be right back.
0: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum helping organizations get it and keep it.
1: Group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive. All on out of the comfort We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight.
0: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program, at one 472 5790 Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Kim Scott. The book we're talking about is Radical Respect. Now, you may have seen Kim's book released in hardbook, hardback called Just Work, She's re-releasing this one under a new title called Radical Respect, which for me makes a ton of sense because it follows from radical candor, but it's the foundational work that's going to allow you to do radical candor. So the argument being, I can't challenge or care if I didn't have a basic level of respect. And the problem with respect is that human beings should deserve, I guess is the word I should say, respect for being human beings, for their feelings, for their identity, for who they are as a person. Um, and sometimes respect is earned as well. So two different meanings of that one and that respect gets disrupted on a team when there is bias, when there is prejudice and when there is bullying. So we have talked about what leaders can do to disrupt bias. That's going to impact respect on the team and to disrupt prejudice and how that's going to disrupt, uh, respect on the team. The one we haven't talked about though is bullying and one that I think everybody is anxious about. So before we dive into that, Kim, I find people talk about bullying and there's the formal sort of classical legal definition of bullying, but there's also that sense of dealing with somebody who's being overly aggressive and you just don't like that aggressiveness. So what do you mean when you say bullying?
2: What I mean is being mean. <laughs> and and, and it, so I'm, I'm trying to boil things down into their sort of simplest way. And what is mean for one person may not be mean for another person. Like there are, for example, I mean, I'll give you sort of a simple example. My son's baseball team, they show affection to one another by giving each other, am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Ur. By giving each other shit. And I don't like that. I don't feel that that's, to me, that I don't experience that as affection when people give me shit. And so I said to him, look, if you want to, with your team, show affection by treating each other this way, like, I'm not going to say that is bullying, but I'm experiencing the way you're talking to me is bullying. It's mean. Stop it. You know, don't talk to me like that. Okay, and I don't think it's too much to ask him to adjust how he's talking depending on who he's talking to. <laughs> and so that that is kind of uh, an example of of what I mean by being mean. Uh, it, it gets it gets measured not at the speaker's mouth but at the listener's ear. And if you don't want to like, if if I say something that for one person is gonna be experienced as funny and as another person is gonna be experienced as mean, it can be a little bit confusing. I mean, I'll give you another example of this. I had worked with this guy, uh, uh, we'll call him Jared, because that's his name, for a long time. He had worked with me at a startup and then he came with me to work at Google and we were localizing uh, AdSense. And he kept confusing and conflating Slovakia and Slovenia. And I corrected him once, and we're in a team meeting, we're talking about this. I corrected him once, I corrected him twice. And then the third time, instead of correcting him the same way, I said, look, it's Slovakia, not Slovenia, dumbass. And he understood that I respected him and liked him, and we worked well together, and he thought it was funny. So I was behaving like my son with his baseball team <laughs> in that case. Right. But, there, but other people on the team who were new to the team were now afraid of me you know, because they thought, oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, if I confuse two things that are confusing to me, she's gonna talk to me that way and I don't wanna be talked to that way. And I realized that. And so I said, look, you all, Jared and I have a relationship, he knows, but I'm not gonna talk to you the way, you know. Right. Uh, And so I think that is, and you know, that's a little hard as a leader to get right, but it's not that, it's not beyond the capacity. If if you've become a leader, you should be able to figure this out.
1: I would agree with that one. It's also a matter of asking. It's a matter yeah. of having people be able to give you the feedback. Hey, I get really worried or anxious or afraid when you use yeah. that kind of language around me. You don't get the best of me when you use that yeah. language. It's yeah. all the stuff that we've been talking about already. Yes, um, it's exactly. just... And recognizing we adapt to people's styles all the time. If you want to get the best out of the team, adaptation yeah. to style is yeah. fundamental to what's going to have to yes. happen you want to communicate. That's it. Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, I had a mentor who said, you know, all of us have a red word. And if you use that word with us, with, you know, if you use one word with me and another word with Kim we're not going to hear another word you say. So if you refer to me as a girl instead of a woman, like I'm not going to hear anything else that you say. So just call me a woman, don't call, you know, and it doesn't matter if other people you work with don't mind being called a girl like I do mind being called. So don't do it. And I think that's it. It's like th- not, there's not these people long for these universal standards, univer- and and these are relational uh relational Um, issues. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's about your relationship with the individuals on your team and their relationship with each other.
1: So we could argue that some of bullying being mean is accidental. I didn't know. Yeah. 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 Unintentional. I didn't mean to use that word and have it have that reaction to you. But I often think about bullying as with the intent of being mean.
2: Yes, yes. Where I want to put you down intentionally.
1: I want to embarrass you in some way.
2: Yes. And I think that um, our intentions don't let us off the hook. (laughs) You know, I mean, they matter. I'm not saying intentions don't matter. They do matter. I would much rather work with an unintentional bully than an intentional bully. But sometimes, like if you think about it, let's take a, a specific example. Let's imagine someone is stepping on my toe and I say, hey, you're on my toe, if the person continues to step on my toe and say, well, I didn't mean to step on your toe, Kip. Like, now you are bullying me. Like, get off my toe and then tell me you're sorry. And then tell me you didn't mean, you know, but, but, but sometimes what happens is someone who didn't mean to, do, to, to make me angry by calling me a girl, when I tell them how I feel about it, when I, tell, when I do the equivalent of saying, you're stepping on my toe, they continue to justify what they're doing and and to say but my but i didn't mean to upset you and i'm like but you but i don't care what you meant to do what i care is that you're on my toe <laughs> get off my toe and and that's kind of when the the unintentional bullying crosses over into something that's less acceptable right this is the place that I
1: well, if I think about all the major mistakes I have made in offending people, and there are a couple of them where I'm just look back and yes, go, oh "My know, gosh, how They're, could I have yeah. done that?" Like, yes. "Oh my god!" So, if any of my former colleagues are hearing this one, and you think this, like, "I'm yep, I own that one. I really screwed up in that one. It really was not intentional, but it is a phrase or a word that comes out of my mouth, and you know, in the moment, like, no." And, or something that you do, you think, oh, I hadn't even seen how that would be an impact. And then it's obvious once you point it out, it's that space where I didn't mean to, that can be so hard to own.
2: Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I I I think You have to correct it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important for leaders to create consequences for bullying, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And so part- part of what leaders need to do is learn how to create conversational consequences. So there are moments, like let's go back to the person who talks and talks and talks and talks. There are moments on a team where that person is not intending to bully others on the team, but they are taking up more than their fair share of the airspace. And that is having the impact of silencing others. So you need to learn how to... Uh, how, how to give other people an opportunity, to give the quiet ones a voice, you know, to give other people an opportunity to talk. You don't want to shame that person in the moment, but you do need to shut them down for their own sake and for the sake of the whole team. Uh, th- th- then there are other times when a person is really just cruel in a meeting. They say something that is, is really mean and you need to learn how to shut that person down in the, in the moment. Or when a person, you know, when a person starts to yell, like one of the simple techniques I learned to create a consequence in the moment, like not a terrible consequence, but if somebody is really yelling and I'm the leader, I walk towards them and that, it, it, although it's my instinct to walk away from them, but if you walk away, they're going to yell louder. When you walk towards them, you kind of shut them down. Right. Uh, and so, so you need to learn how to create these conversational consequences for bullying. Or and sometimes, if the bullying is really extreme, you need you need to stop the meeting and say, you know, you can't talk to your colleagues that way. You know, a right. use statement. Um, and by the way, a you statement I learned from my daughter. I think very often leaders in the moment when they're trying to create a conversational consequence, they they they, they use an I statement. And they'll say, "I don't think you meant that the way you sounded or I you know, when you you know, when, when you say blah 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 blah, I feel blah 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 blah." And my daughter, I this is what I was recommending to my daughter when she was getting bullied on the playground. She banged her fist on the table and she said, "Mom, They are trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell them they succeeded? I was like, oh, that's a really good point, you know? So I think much better to say, you can't talk to me like that than I feel sad when you talk to me like that. And when it's bullying or when you think it's bullying. Now, the next thing you need to do as a leader is you need to create compensation consequences. I think very often one of the problems with bullying is that it is effective for the individual, even though it causes harm. For the whole team, yeah. uh, the the you know the the trail of damage that uh, that a bully leaves behind them doesn't get cal- calculated in their uh, in, in in their bonus, for example. Right. So you need to make sure you're not rewarding bullying by giving them a high rating and not factoring in uh, the <laughs> so bullying. Kind of creates a negative externality. Um, it works for the bully, but it's but it but it creates more damage uh, uh, than than good collectively um, so you need to make sure you're making those those compensation consequences you're giving them poor ratings um, okay. and then in fact at one company where I worked they would when they gave ratings assess people on their on their teamwork on their results and on their innovation and if their teamwork was bad no matter how good their results were they couldn't get a high rating and therefore they couldn't get a bonus and i think that's the right way to approach that and then the third consequence you need to create is career consequences i think there comes a moment on a lot of teams histories when the assholes begin to win and that's the moment when the culture begins to lose so don't promote people who indulge in bullying and at a certain point once you've given the person feedback given them an opportunity to understand that the way they're behaving is not acceptable you you have to fire them in the immortal words of steve jobs it's better to have a hole than an asshole (laughs) um yes yes
1: indeed fair enough so conversational consequences. So I'm going to stop it, shut it down, call it out in some way. I'm going to have compensation consequences so that I don't allow the bully to feel rewarded or to be rewarded either in the formal compensation systems, performance systems, or in informal ways, meaning they got their way this time, their project goes forward the way they wanted it to go Yeah. Forward. And then career consequences that ultimately we're not promoting somebody who's succeeding at bullying and we're not keeping them around. We're not going to keep them in the organization. Exactly. Okay. All right. Um, Kim, last question before we totally run out of time. Suppose I say something intentionally, unintentionally, bullying, not bullying. I say something. It's offensive. It's offensive. Yes, there's maybe a flag waving saying, whoa, 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 as you have demonstrated. What do I do next? Do I say, I'm sorry, what do I do?
2: Yeah, I think that the first thing that's important to do is to make sure that you understand what you did wrong. Uh, uh, there's a wonderful book on repentance and repair, and and the point that... Uh, that uh, I'm going to say her name wrong. Uh, Rabbi do- Danya Ruttenberg, I think, is mm-hmm. it, her name, is the author's name. But she she points out that the first thing you need to do is you need to acknowledge what you did wrong. And in order to acknowledge what you did wrong, you need to understand it. So you need to educate yourself. And you don't need to demand that the person you harmed educate you. You know, So yeah. understand what you did. Take the time to understand and acknowledge, as publicly as possible, what you did wrong. At, don't go straight to an apology, especially if you don't understand. Like, I'm sorry you feel that way. That is not going to help right. <laughs> uh, at all. And uh, and then you need to to you need to make amends for what you did. You, you know, you need to sort of accept the consequences. Like, th- there should be some negative consequences on you, and you need to accept those, not fight those. Uh, and then it becomes safer to apologize. Then it beca- then, then you've ca- kind of laid the 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 gr- groundwork for your apology. But after you apologize, you need to make sure you've changed. You need to make sure you're not repeating the same mistake because then your apology. Uh, feels meaning. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: exactly. All right, Kim, I think we can keep talking because I have about yes. five more questions that I want to ask you. <laughs> but as always, I am out of time. So Kim, thanks for being here today. The book, for those of you who are interested, is called Radical Respect. It was formerly called Just Work. It is the foundations for creating this lovely radical candor where I'm going to care and challenge simultaneously. And that's the place that puts us on our teams and in our relationships where we're really going to excel. The secret to getting respect is making sure you are not allowing bias, prejudice, and bullying to disrupt your team. And I think what's interesting about what you're doing, Kim, is you're broadening our understanding of bias, prejudice, and bullying to recognize the day in and day out behaviors that we do that cause other people to feel less than or inadequate or hurt or harmed and giving us a model for how do we address
2: those? How do we do a better job
1: next yes. time? Yes.
2: How can we all become part of the solution, not part of the problem, right. which is right. what we all want to do, I think. What we all want to do. And all in the service, as you said
1: so eloquently at the beginning, getting better performance. Yes. As greater contrib- contributions, broader ideas, all those wonderful things are ultimately going to let us have better performing teams and better performing companies.
2: Yeah. Because doing great work is actually such a, it, it can it can help us recover from trauma. Right. Or we can have a terrible work environment that re-traumatizes us. So Absolutely. let's do the former, not the latter. Absolutely. All right, Kim, thanks for being a guest. And if you like today's episode, please
1: like us on your favorite podcast provider and join us next week for another episode in getting out of
0: your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.